You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. But it was such a wonderful horse. John Jay, New York revolutionary lawyer, future Supreme Court justice and governor, was Secretary of Foreign Affairs during the Confederation Congress and between the period of the Revolutionary War and before the Constitution was enacted, and Thomas Jefferson would take that job over. He had his own farm, he had his own horses, and he was eager to obtain a breed of Spanish horses. Thus he thought little of requesting from the Spanish ambassador, Diego de Gardogi, permission to bring in one of the Spanish horses for breeding. In 1786, Gardogi replies to John Jay. When he requested of the king of Spain this permission, the king replied, instead of granting permit, he ordered a horse to be sent to me for you. So now, John Jay's got this stallion, not as a favor, not as a one-time use, but as a present from the king of a foreign country. And at the same time, the early United States is negotiating a treaty with Spain regarding navigation of the Mississippi River. This is not unnoticed by critics. And there's a skeptical press. But Jay just can't give up the opportunity. He even tells George Washington, it occurred to me that if you would be inclined to have the Spanish breed of horses... It would be but little trouble for one of your servants to bring up some mares to put to my horses. The horse is one of the largest, and the colts exceed my expectations and are very promising. He submits the matter to Congress, and Congress, despite the criticism, approves. Well, everybody's happy, except Jay triggered a clause that actually predates. It's not just a constitutional clause, it predates the Constitution. It's in the Articles of Confederation, the Emoluments Clause, that forbids federal officers, and Jay was certainly one, from accepting gifts from foreign leaders, emolument from Latin emolumentum, profit, gain, advantage, benefit, which may have its root in emolare, to grind out of, to grind from, as in the payment made to a miller for grain, something that's going to come up in a bit. It was a concern from the get-go of the New American Republic. When King Louis XVI gave an American minister a portrait of himself, it was somewhat questionable. But when it was found that that portrait was encased completely, the frame completely in diamonds, under it, a gold 
snuff box. Well, this raised eyebrows. Or when Ben Franklin, from the same king, received a miniature portrait of the king, set in diamonds. These examples in mind, as the delegates met in Philadelphia to decide about the Constitution during the Convention of 1787, Charles Pickney of South Carolina, one of the younger members of the Constitutional Convention, urged the necessity of keeping ministers of the United States independent of influence. There's no other recorded debate about what Pickney says. It just ends up in the Constitution. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without consent of Congress, except of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8. Later, during the Virginia Ratification Convention, when the issues are being debated, Edmund Randolph, who was at the convention, uh, notes to the body considering ratification that it was indeed concerned about that gold snuffbox that produced this part of the Constitution and the need for protection. It's not an issue that has come up a lot. The presidents have gone out of their way to avoid any kind of appearance of, of influence, but there were a few people that questioned when Ted Kennedy accepted an honorary knight title from Queen Elizabeth. Though Congress provided, if not a vote on the matter, a standing ovation. NASA officials were questioned when they pursued foreign fellowships, and it was only ruled okay because it wasn't considered from a government directly. Three presidents, Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Barack Obama, received Nobel Peace Prizes. Obama came with $1.4 million, the Department of Justice deciding that because the Nobel Committee was not directly part of the government of Norway, it was an independent body, that he could accept the amount. Just because something in the Constitution has been talked about a lot doesn't mean it can't come back, and the current president, as most know, has business interests all around the world. Unlike in the United States, where things are fairly clear between what's the state of Virginia or what's the United States federal government and what is Exxon Corporation or what is, you know, Microsoft or Target, in other countries, the line between what's a government and what is a business can be blurry. A lot of attention focused on the current president's hotel in Washington, D.C. Can I just say... I loved that little post office building that it used to be, and so that makes me a little sad uh, whenever I hear about this hotel. But put that aside, it's a hotel. It's leased from, leased from the federal government. His hotel received 276000 from Saudi Arabia during a particular event hosted there. It receives numerous ambassadors and diplomats who are visiting a major tenant of Trump Tower is the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. Their lease comes up in 2019. And this is just a few examples of what could be possible conflicts where, yes, there very well could be a present emolument. Prior to his presidency, the president uh, turned over the Trump organization to his children 
sold liquid assets like stocks. Other presidents in the past have put their holdings into a blind trust. This happened with Dick Cheney, famously. Jimmy Carter and his peanut farm was literally in a blind trust. I mean, during his presidency, it wasn't actually being run well, and they even tried to sell it. They didn't even tell Jimmy Carter about it, uh, the attempt to sell it, because it's a blind trust. That's not what he's done. He's turned it over to his children, and lawsuits filed. Here's what the LA Times says. The Constitutional Emoluments Clause is based on a dread of corruption from office holders, tainted by the scrum of the marketplace. Trump's businesses' buildings are violating it. On the other hand, the National Review. In our putrid, take-no-prisoners politics, the Constitution's prohibition on accepting foreign emoluments is the weapon du jour in the war on Trump. Trump's opponents claim, every time a foreign diplomat books a room, pays for a meal in a Trump property, the Constitution is violated. Sleep well, the National Review says. Mr. President, there are no emoluments under your bed. In a sense, and I think it's important to see this point of view, the defense amounts to if any business can ensnare a president in the emoluments clause, no large businessman can be president. Only lawyers, government employees, activists, small-time business people engaged in domestic businesses could be president. CEOs need not apply. Ross Perot might have had an issue involved in this in 1992, as his uh, company did international trade. Many, there are people who would like to see Michael Bloomberg as president, and I think that would have to be sorted out as to whether anything's coming from international governments. But would it be that issues in our politics are discussed in such objective terms? It's usually expressed in the hysterical extremes. Here's, so here's how that particular issue is molded. Left-leaning academics are suspicious of the free market and have come up with an anti-market interpretation of the emoluments clause that requires presidents to divest their interests at fire sale prices. Again, the National Review. Presidents Washington, Madison, Jefferson, and Monroe all owned massive plantations and sold agricultural commodities in Europe. Undoubtedly, some of their clients were foreign governments. But no political opponent ever raised the specter that they were violating the Foreign Emoluments Clause. The Department of Justice, Trump's lawyers, make the case that George Washington did it. So why can't he? Okay, so just a note that right now at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com we have some more information about the Constitution and about various clauses, including the Emoluments Clause. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com Be sure to go there.
Benjamin Henry Latrobe, living in America, but from Germany, was a fan of George Washington. The general, now president, actually instructed his secretary, Tobias Lear, to allow those who had an understandable curiosity to view the buildings of the house if they wished, if they stopped by Mount Vernon. And there were often visitors. 16th July, 1796, Latrobe was one. He had a letter from Washington's nephew, Bushrod Washington. He described Mount Vernon. Good fences, clear grounds, and extensive cultivation strikes the eye as something uncommon in this part of the world. The president's house is two and a half miles from a mill belonging to him on water from a canal. That mill is actually important to our discussion of the emoluments clause, but let's continue. The house becomes visible between two groves of trees at about a mile's distance. It has no very striking appearance. Smaller than many English country houses, though superior to every house I've seen here. Along the front is a portico, supported by eight square pillars of good proportions and effect. The ground on the west front of the house is laid out on a level lawn, bounded on each side with a wide but extremely formal serpentine walk, shaded by weeping willows, a tree which grows in this country very well. Before the portico, a lawn extends, a grove of locust trees to each side, to the edge of a bank. The mighty Potomac runs close under this bank, the elevation of which is perhaps 250 feet. I sent in my letter of introduction, and within 10 minutes, the president arrived. Now, George Washington was a big fan of his nephew, Bushrod. He didn't have any children of his own, and Bushrod is the guy who's going to get Mount Vernon after Washington's death. So I'm not surprised he rushed out. He said he was pleased to see a friend of his nephew. He inquired about my family. The conversation turned to the rivers of Virginia. He gave me a minute account of all their directions, their natural advantages, and what he conceived might be done to improve them by art. He then talked about the dismal swamp in Virginia and the efforts to drain it and form a canal. The conversation lasted an hour. Then he told me he was endeavoring to finish some letters. But as I got up to take my leave, he told me to please keep my chair. He continued. He spoke of great works going on in England. He spoke of people in Pennsylvania, of coal mines in Virginia. After a brief break... Washington goes off to go write some of those letters he mentions to Latrobe, and Latrobe chats with Martha Washington. He figures, though, that he should go. He doesn't want to waste any more of the president's time. Mrs. Washington expresses surprise and a wish that he not go. But as Latrobe says, and you have to kind of understand 18th century etiquette, It wasn't enough of a wish that Etiquette would have demanded that Latrobe stay. So he asked for the horses, and the horses are sent. 
President Washington comes out and says, well, do you have any pressing business that uh, would cause you to leave so soon? And Latrobe says, oh, no, sir, I do not. It's said, well, stay in Mount Vernon tonight. And after a short time, coffee is served, and George Washington continues his conversation. He asks Latrobe, how are the crops in Richmond? He gives him an account of the insect that is affecting grain crops in the north, not yet in Virginia. Washington tells Latrobe about the cultivation of Indian corn, the merits of different kinds of plows. The Rotterdam is the best. Second best is the Berkshire. Now I think it's a little funny. Latrobe mentions at this point is in his memory, it grew dark. Mrs. Washington retired. There was no hint of supper. Washington continued, the Rutherham plows are good, but the ironwork is too hard to repair. Latrobe mentions silver mines that are being found in the country. Washington is cautious and suspicious. He hopes none is discovered in this country. I hope nothing is discovered in this country but that which a plow can reach. Save iron or coal. Silver or gold would tempt considerable capitals and made him uneasy. Around 8 o'clock, everyone went off to bed. And then at 7.30 in the morning, George Washington and a few others are back, now with his secretary, Tobias Lair, and they talk to Latrobe some more about the property, the rivers, the Great Falls, the progress on the new federal city of Washington. He hopes to build a university there. Breakfast was served. In the Virginia style, Latrobe says, tea, coffee, and cold and broiled meat. Washington has something uncommonly majestic and commanding in his walk, his address, his figure, and his countenance. It was impressed upon me, upon seeing of the greatest man that nature ever produced, but in a less degree than even I saw when I saw the less like a man-looking King Frederick II of Prussia. There was a mildness about his expression, an air of reserve in his manner. He was frequently... He was frequently entirely silent for many minutes, during which time an awkwardness seemed to prevail in everyone present. Now, what do we get from Benjamin Henry Latrobe's account, besides the fact that the president liked coal mines and knew about his plows? I think you see that he understood a great deal about farming and the area around Mount Vernon. He was not a disinterested rich person uh, using the business as a front for treasured political activities. He did like getting involved in national affairs, but it's quite the opposite. He was always interested in that farm, in that business. One more story. This from Julian Ursin Niemcewicz, who is a visitor from Poland. and recently had been a political prisoner of Russia for fighting for his own country's independence, is now very honored to come and meet George Washington at Mount Vernon. At about 11 o'clock, we set out for Mount Vernon. We crossed the river by ferry and followed the Maryland bank. From there, the federal city, or rather the land destined for the city, rises in an amphitheater. After having made four or five miles, we arrived at the point opposite Alexandria. I saw there an immense field, 
covered with the most beautiful wheat that one could wish for. I asked of the reason for this. This fertility almost unknown in America and very rare in any country. I was told that the ground was fertilized with herrings. He continues. We took 25 minutes to cross the Potomac. I stopped in Alexandria at the merchant Atkins to buy a pound of cut tobacco. It sells at a dollar a pound, which is excessive for a country which is the fatherland of tobacco. I muttered against this habit, unclean and unhealthy. No, so uh, Niemcewicz is complaining about, well, the price of cigarettes. I guess it's, uh, I suppose, a, a, an old-time thing. He reaches Mount Vernon. We saw vast fields covered with different grains, 100 acres in peas alone, much rye, corn, wheat, flax, large meadows. We saw a very large mill built in stone, an American machine invented by Evans, who has published a book on mills for the aeration of the flour. It is very ingenious. Niemcewicz is referring to that Washington employed the very latest science at his farm. Here, there was uh, there's a step involved in the in the grain process where a person has to manually rake the grains in order to cool them. In Washington's mill, there was a machine that handled that cooling. Here he says, each year a thousand kegs of wheat flour are ground for export. Just nearby is a whiskey distillery. They distill up to 12,000 gallons a year, 50 gallons a day. Niemcewitz also meets Washington. In the evening, George Washington showed us his garden. It is well cultured and neatly kept. One sees the vegetables for his kitchen. Corinths, raspberries, strawberries, gooseberries, gusberries, peach and cherries, lilies, roses, a thousand kinds of plants, all kinds of bushes, Spanish chestnut trees, and a tulip. All of this from Eyewitness to Mount Vernon, a very good book, good book where you can really get kind of the inside of what was going on there. Really everything from the property, as these two guests have described, to the wonderful chimney mantle, to the windows, to Martha Washington's chin. I mean, all of this from Eyewitnesses in the book. It should be said that Niemcewicz, who is from Poland, does not admire the slave quarters on Mount Vernon, which he finds wretched and in worse condition, living conditions, than Polish peasants. In describing Washington's property and talking about George Washington at all, I think it's important to state they had over 300 slaves. And they did the work, along with other hired hands. Many of them were skilled. Uh, it wasn't just people working in fields, although that was done. There were chefs, boatsmen, fishermen, millers, coopers, shepherds, and all sorts of functions. But I don't think that you should discount that a large contribution of what we're about to talk about here, and that is Washington the businessman, comes from people who are receiving no remuneration for the services. Uh, but all of the process of the engagement added to this kind of George Washington ink at Mount Vernon. 
indeed his flower. Washington gave up on tobacco in 1764, but he got into grain and flour, and his flour was marked under the name G. Washington. And as a merchant told him in 1773, this is before he became general or president, it has the performance of any at this market. It has the preference of any at this market. So before he was ultra-famous, that flour was known. He also produced fish, rye, sheep, flour, grain, corn, all products. And towards the end of his presidency, Mount Vernon still fully functioning throughout his time as general and president, whiskey. They were the products of Mount Vernon. He reviewed agricultural journals. He employed the latest harvesting and milling techniques. He kept his accounts, his books. He was more involved than many Virginia planters were at the time in the business. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Even as president, he continued with weekly reports, demanded weekly reports from whoever was managing Mount Vernon, and that was different people at different times, and also reports from his secretary, Tobias Lear. He visited when he could. I mean, when he first becomes president, it takes a year and a half for him to get back there. But he's very involved. He owned massive real estate holdings, 8,000 acres in Virginia, right there in that area around Mount Vernon, but also tens of thousands in backcountry Virginia and Pennsylvania, which he was trying to get renters on. Never quite did. Thus, supporters of the current president point to the first president, George Washington, as a person with sprawling business interests, an empire, George Washington, Inc., G. Washington on the flower. He sold to foreigners, they say. It would be hard to argue that he didn't. There's a few other things about George Washington that have specifically entered into this debate about emoluments because we're talking about a president also being involved in business and conflicts between the business and their role as president. So a few things they point out. Washington, while president in 1793, enlisted the help of Arthur Young, who was on the British Board of Agriculture. It's a quasi-government agency. It's an agency for the promotion of agriculture. Washington had written articles, and Young had published them in his journal, reprinted the article about some of the agricultural methods he was trying in Virginia. So Washington asks for Young's help. Washington has decided that he wants to take about half his property in Mount Vernon and rent it out. You know, Washington has seen that his western lands aren't being rented out, that sometimes American farmers aren't using the current methods. There is a sense killing the land by over-farming it. 
And he wanted to have a, a European renter. He said, sure, you know, send someone to look at the land. And in, in, a, in a sense, it's a networking. He's not asking Arthur Young directly for assistance. It's, it's asking for networking help. Could you, could you, do you know anybody? That kind of thing. He even notes in his letter that some may think there's some impropriety in me doing this. Uh, he does not. Young doesn't think so either. And a person does come to look at Mount Vernon as a result of this letter, but none, the property is never divided or rented. Washington owned shares in a Potomac company. This is a company that was building a canal improvement in a sense of a public purpose, but he owned the shares. He was given these shares by the legislature in Virginia. He also purchased at a public auction lots for the new federal city in D.C. Okay, several lots, about six lots. Now, how, the defenders of the current president say, against charges of emolument, could Trump be charged for something Washington did? Everything, however, I think must, must be contextualized. Before you're going to use the history, you're going to really look at what it is. What is it that you're using? And I think this, this is what people often brush past because they're more interested in the politics side. So they're rushing past the history and finding some little token example often claiming a dearth of information where there is more information. We'll get into that. So let's look at Washington's action here. Washington undoubtedly sold some of his grain to Europe. However, it's not likely a majority. During his presidency, a bug, the Hessian fly, this little nasty bug said to have come from the straw beds of the hated Hessian soldiers, its larvae feeds on the sap of wheat plants. It weakens them so much that they cannot bear grain. This Hessian fly hits the northern states in 1790, just kills off the wheat crop. This made Virginia the breadbasket of the nation at this time. Washington's flour was sold in Virginia to merchants in Alexandria and Norfolk, and some of it was consumed right there in Virginia. It was traded in the north. It also went to the West Indies, likely one of the larger customers internationally. We know that it went to Portugal and to some degree Britain. Records of sales are not present. We know from the eyewitness accounts at Mount Vernon that grain was being milled for export. Indeed, Washington used the French millstone and its particular indents that's used to ground fine powder for export. Yet the Hessian fly also changed, as did the revolution, any kind of U.S.-British trade relations. The U.S. had no treaty following the war and wouldn't get one until that Jay Treaty of 1795. The Privy Council would issue directives about what to do in the absence of a broad treaty. A lot of restrictions, one related to this Hessian fly, and also British farmers were often jealous of low-cost grain and flour coming in from America and pushed for restrictions. So, for some time in Washington's presidency, grain sales were not permitted. No exception was made for the G. Washington flour or anything like that. G. Washington flour, as good as it was, as a good reputation it had, competed on a world market. I did review one book on a trade between grain consumption in Britain during this time, and only a small percentage of British grain consumption was coming from outside Britain during the 1790s, maybe 10%. And it was about split between America and Prussia. So it's a small amount. That's going to spike up during the Napoleonic Wars. That's when American grain really takes off. 
just suffice it to say that I don't believe that the Britain was his large customer. There is no evidence of any special deal, any special price. It was likely sold to merchants who handled the rest. No evidence exists of any sales from Mount Vernon to foreign governments directly, special sales to diplomats, any kind of special price, anything that might be considered an emolument. Now his letter to Arthur Young, right, where he's asking for help with renters. It's not a public act. It might have been criticized at the time if it was. I mean, this is something where you might get a little conflict here. It's not like he announced, hey, I'm writing this letter to Arthur Young. Arthur's a friend. Uh, beyond the Revolutionary Times, it's possibly a violation, but a pretty minor one. Washington, like many Virginia planters, had many merchant friends and many friends involved in business and agriculture in Britain. These were the kind of people, people like Young or Robert Carey, who he had conducted business with during his tobacco days. British merchants were the kind of people who were supporting the American cause in Britain. So he had many friends there. Anyway, possible violation, a minor one. No transaction ever did occur. The shares of the Potomac Company and his having participated in a public auction for land in what is now Washington, D.C., I find this one most interesting when it's brought up. I mean, those looking to find business entanglements in what Washington did are forgetting an obvious thing. The town was was miles from his house. It bore his name. And yes, the commissioners uh, that he appointed named it to Washington City. This was before his death. So while George Washington usually would refer to it as the federal city or uh, more commonly in his writing as to the territory of Columbia, the commissioners named it Washington prior to his death. It has a name on it. There's a conflict. (laughs) You know, so it's a little like if we called a city Trumpville uh, or Reaganwood. I mean, you know, (laughs) that very fact demonstrates that Washington was so obviously an exceptional president. So I think it shines a light on this. The Washington did it excuse is is not really a good one. He was a revered, popular, unquestioned hero that frankly meant more to the nation than simply a president. President was one role that he had. He participates in the auction for Washington, uh, D.C., for the, for the federal city, because it needs participation. They never got the interest in the auction that they were looking for. No record of any special price, any special favor. It's not necessarily seen as a great investment. In fact, it's probably a high-risk investment at this time, and it needs help. Using Washington as comparison, I'm not completely against going to Washington since he was a president. You know, he's one one of the 44 And you can certainly find some examples in history, but you also have to consider that he was the first one, and we were still a country that kind of needed a leg up. Two of the lots were used for, intended to be used for investment homes that he would rent out, although they kind of had a dual purpose as well because they were, in the future, used as congressional boarding houses. That was his intention. So, again, you have this kind of tied up in the... The nation being an early project of democracy, kind of fledgling and needing help, and this city needs things, creating an infrastructure for the city. But among the lots that he bought, 
Some of it is the land that is now the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. This, I think, is something that could have been better researched by people who are citing the example of Washington participating in this public auction and perhaps is suggesting that he profited from the construction of Washington, D.C. He tells his visitor, Benjamin Henry Latrobe, remember, that he's hoping to fund a university. And as to those shares of the Potomac Company, in his will, here we find, I give and bequeath the 50 shares I hold in the Potomac Company towards the endowment of a university to be established within the limits of the District of Columbia. Washington, a huge supporter of education. He goes on in his will talking about how important education is to the new republic so that people will have the education needed to discuss the issues and fully participate in democracy. He details in a 1796 letter to the commissioners. And the commissioners of D.C. are David Stewart, Daniel Carroll, and Thomas Johnson. Daniel Carroll has also donated land to the District of Columbia, among many other people. I think that letter should have been found by people bringing up this public auction. So, you know, again, you can argue that out of he bought six lots and there were two that he used for an investment property. But the larger portion of Washington's buy in that city was intended to be used for a national purpose. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. I come out somewhat mixed on this one. I, of course, find that some of the quick statements about Washington actions were to be without merit when you actually examine them. Yet for the more salient political point and that criticism that could be made that any wealthy and active entrepreneur will always incur a few brush-ups if they take on a public office. Well, as an example, it works for that. Because here is a person who was not interested in becoming a complete and total freeholder divorcing himself from his private business interest. There's a little legal debate on the emoluments, and it gets a little technical, but it's out there, so I feel like I have to comment on it because it does bring in history from several court cases of the past. I have opinions on these, but they haven't officially been adjudicated by any court, so right now they're just kind of out there in the public sphere as arguments. But first of all, since the president is not mentioned specifically in the emoluments clause, it says, uh, of office of public trust or profit, does it apply to the president? A few legal scholars, article writers say no. There's a letter from Alexander Hamilton where he's asked by Congress to produce a list of all the federal officers, and he doesn't include the vice president or president. Federal officers could be construed as just the ones under the president. Also, what is an emolument? Now, critics, including the National Review, cite a couple court cases. Hoyt v. U.S. from 1850, McLean v. U.S. from 1912, Macmillan from 1920. These are all cases where the word emoluments are mentioned. 
in these cases, the court defines emoluments as only proceeds from the offices that they conduct. I think they're all weak precedent. None refer to payments from a king or a prince. They're not the same thing. They are just a different scope where the only thing the court was considering in the cases was about the salaries from their job. We do have a textualist strain in the court, so it's necessary to look in the emoluments discussion. You have, speaking of the text, in that emoluments clause also, it's not just defining what the word emoluments means, there's also the word presence. Presence from a king, prince, foreign state are banned. I think that greatly lowers the scale. In terms of uh, the president not being a federal officer, I think that could be pretty quickly adjudicated, though we'll see what a, what a court says if it comes up. Uh, several times in the Constitution, we refer to the office of the presidency, you know, the oath clause before taking office. I find myself looking at this issue with suspicion at the hand-waving, hey, Washington did it, so it's okay, type argument, or this was litigated in the election. I particularly don't like, you know, everyone knows president had a lot of businesses and they elected him anyway. Um, presidential election is not the be-all and end-all of all political discussions and considerations. You know, I find that view overly narrow. There are so many things that an electorate has to consider. It's the same as the mandate question. An electorate has to consider when they're voting for president. So many issues on the table, from health care to fighting terrorism to who the opponents are, that to just say everything's litigated because one person's elected in a massive election involving 50 states in the District of Columbia with millions of people making independent decisions. And based on the information they had at the time, I, I don't think that's right. I also think there's at times too much hysteria on this issue as well. And critics are looking for a way to exclude a person from the presidency by fiat and feel that they may have found something. There doesn't seem to be much interest in really investigating what the real purpose is, what activities should be included. It's hard to argue against this. The framers, at the time of construction, not just in the Constitution, but the Articles, that makes it even more important, were concerned that a foreign prince might appear and bribe officers of the government. It's a real concern. It hasn't come up because no one's ever come close to it. And so we should, and there's a great Alito quote on this when he was Deputy Attorney General. I'm going to address it in the way that it was intended. I don't believe it's a ban on normal business procedures or that a person for president might have a separate business. I mean, you could argue that modern precedent has gone in that direction. Jimmy Carter's peanut farm, Dick Cheney's Halliburton stocks, you know, that people who assume great federal offices have taken a burden of divorcing themselves from some of their business interests. That's a more modern, if we're just talking about constitutional considerations. I don't think it bans a president from doing business. It's probably not useful, this clause, for any normal market transaction, but should be used for extraordinary presence, greater than market gifts, 
intended to influence. I think those very big red flags, for instance, with the marketing of a hotel to diplomats or even the presence of diplomats attending one particular hotel to curry favor from the president, you know, you're going to go into impeachment on that. I don't think that's going to be alone a reason, but it's certainly something that if you're looking for the kinds of things those who wrote the Constitution and the Articles were looking at, you know, you don't need a direct quid pro quo to trigger a problem with emoluments. It was never about that. They didn't want gifts, presents bestowed upon a person. I mean, of course it's wrong to bribe someone and say, if you give me this, I'll, I'll, I'll do this for you. But emoluments go a step beyond that. They don't even want the gift to occur. But there is a balance. Are we never to have an international businessman as president? Are they going to be so afraid of what's going to happen to what they built up for the rest of their life? They're just uneligible for the presidency. So you have a clear conflict between those two arguments. And who do you have to decide it? As the Constitution reads, emoluments need the express permission of Congress. For permission, there has to be review. For review, there has to be investigation. That's where I think the activities lie in this current conflict. Who decides who makes that call between normal businessman stuff and extra emoluments that might be a concern? Yeah, the DOJ has a role. Eventually, perhaps the courts will have a role. But it's Congress. And if they aren't reviewing hard enough, if they're not asking for enough information, if they're not requiring certain practices, if they're not flagging things they don't like, they have every right to be criticized. After all, the Constitution says it. It's their job. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. A reminder, on that site I have a link to the Premium Podcast. And there you can get extra bonus episodes. Helps the program greatly and you get more history, you get more information from me. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.